From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's one of the most powerful jobs in the state, and 17 candidates are vying to be Denver's next mayor at a turning point for the capital city. We spoke to well over 100 Denverites, and we found that the top three issues are housing and homelessness, affordability and crime. Ballots go out in a week. Then, a Costa Rican chef in Boulder on a very special sauce. It is something mind-blowing to this market, but for Costa Ricans, it's something so simple that we use with everything, and this is called Salsa Lisano. Salsa Lisano, Byron Gomez likens it to the ketchup of Costa Rica, and he uses it to make his signature Pollo Tico. We'll talk about his fairy tale entry into fine dining, his time on Top Chef, and this return to his roots. Your old or unwanted car still has value. Donate it to Colorado Public Radio. We'll help free up some space in your garage or driveway, and you'll help CPR bring the programs you value to listeners across the state. Any make, any condition, we'll take it. Start the safe and easy car donation process and find answers to your donation questions at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Cities across the state elect mayors this year, including the two biggest cities, Denver and Colorado Springs. We're going to focus on the race in the capital. A whopping 17 people are running to lead the Mile High City, the largest field in decades. What happens in Denver, of course, matters well beyond city and county limits, given what an economic engine it is. And speaking of things financial, there's a lot of spending in this race, including outside dollars flooding in. Denverite reporters Desiree Matherin and Kyle Harris join us one week before ballots go out. Welcome to you both. Hello, hello. Hello. Uh, Kyle, why don't you expound a bit on why this mayoral race in Denver is so important? Well, Denver has a strong mayor system. And in fact, it's one of the strongest mayor systems in all of the country. I was having a great chat with uh, former mayor, former governor, current senator, John Hickenlooper. And he was telling me that of all of the positions he's held, this is the most powerful in the state. So my goodness, that does say a lot. And I guess that means that the mayor is stronger than the council. The mayor is much stronger Uh than the council with veto power, the ability to set the budget, all that good stuff. The mayor also oversees 13,000 budgeted employees. So this is the CEO, the top dog, et cetera, of the city. Um, And most importantly, and people, including the candidates, often forget this. The mayor appoints the person who's in charge of the third busiest airport in the world, Denver International Airport. And they're in charge of the state's largest police department. Previous mayors have gone on to do all sorts of stuff. Um, the Secretary of Transportation, like Hickenlooper, Governor and, and Senator. So it's a, it's not just a great position here in the city, but it's a uh, a launching pad for, for careers. E- even though it might be more powerful than what they go on to, as you have heard. Tell us about the field of candidates. Well, there's 17 people on the ballot currently and a few write-on candidates. In the mix, there's a current and former state senator. There's a current state rep. There are multiple community activists in the field, and there are also business leaders from across industries. Who is ahead? Well, that's a funny question. Nobody. <laughs> I asked it. Wink nudgy. Yeah. Yes. There is nobody ahead right now. 
of all the polls that we've looked at, none suggest a person has a strong lead. The one thing that we know from all the polling is that most Denverites don't currently have a pick for mayor. So they are undecided. Huh. With ballots going out in a week. Ballots are going out in a week. Exactly. And right now we're just beginning to see ads hit the television. So those will actually end up shaping some people's views of who they should pick. Okay, let's talk about the issues shaping this race. Des, what would you say they are, the top ones? So we spoke to well over 100 Denverites, and we found out what they were concerned with via surveys and just talking to them one-on-one at bars and things like that. And we found out the top three issues are housing and homelessness, affordability and crime. Those issues have been mirrored in the TV ads, and those are what the candidates are talking about in their ads and in their, in their debates. Okay, so what people want the candidates to talk about, they seem to be talking about. Oh, definitely. Of course, so many of those are intertwined, right? The notion of affordability and homelessness and the notion of all of that perhaps being connected to crime, at least to some extent. Now, I know those same issues are also playing out in city council races because those are up this year. Yes, those are definitely up this year. And although the mayor is the most important person in the city, city council is equally as important. Um, Those people represent different districts in the city, and they also represent the city as a whole. Uh, There's 13 seats available. And the most competitive race would be the council at large. Those and are two, two of those, right? Two of those seats, exactly. Yeah. And they represent all of Denver. Yeah, it's fascinating. They're, I don't want to call them mini mayors exactly, but the entire city and county winds up being their purview. Uh, what role is money playing in this election? And maybe we tackle the mayor's race first. So money gives us some indication of who is getting support. Former Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce CEO Kelly Bruff and former state senator Mike Johnston, they each have over a million dollars. And that's including money from outside groups, from super PAC-like groups. Other big money candidates include state rep Leslie Harrod, businessman Andy Rougeau. He's been self-funding. And then there's also state senator Chris Hansen. But money isn't everything, is it? Money is far from everything. Two of the big name candidates who maybe aren't bringing quite as much money but are are still polling quite well are criminal justice advocate Lisa Calderon and city council member Debbie Ortega. Now, when we say polling quite well, that's all in context. It is in context. No one is busting the polls. I imagine there's big money in those council races too, Des. Certainly there's lots, especially in the at-large race. Registered neighborhood organization leader Travis Liker and former labor attorney Sarah Parity are in the lead at the at-large races. And on the district level, two-time candidate Dara Watson is leading with a lot of donations from the employees of developers and their lobbyists. When the reality is developers and their lobbyists are peppering races across the board. Um, Though, that said, the council races don't seem to be attracting as much in the way of outside money. I think this might be clear to people, but say just a few words about why developers are interested in spending in these races. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, because Des talked about housing, right? Oh, housing is a huge issue. The mayor oversees community planning and development, which oversees permitting and, and site development reviews, large development reviews, all the processes in place to get stuff built. And as far as city council is concerned, city council members are also land use commissioners. So when it comes to receiving dollars from developers, developers also want to be friendly with city council because they can they can zone, talk about the, zoning. Zone them in their in exactly, or out of existence. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> zoning laws are important to city council and they're the ones who handle stuff like that. Now, one big difference this year is that Denver taxpayers 
are contributing to campaigns as well, right? Exactly. We have this thing called the Fair Elections Fund, and in it, candidates are getting a match on any contribution from individuals who live in Denver. So in the mayor's race alone, candidates have received more than $2 million in taxpayer money. Combined. Combined. Okay. That's given an absolute lifeline to, to candidates like Lisa Calderon, to Debbie Ortega, who have been struggling to keep up in terms of campaign financing. Which w- presumably was the intent of having passed this. Exactly. The idea is to level the playing field. That has not stopped big money from influencing the race. As we've heard. Okay, when is this race happening? Give us the timeline. Okay, the ballots go out on March 13th, and people are going to have till April 4th at 7 p.m. to vote. And every race except for at-large seats on city council have runoffs. If someone does not reach 50 percent plus one, there's a good chance this race will continue until June 6th. June 6th would be the runoff. Exactly. And that could be for mayor. For mayor, for all the city council districts, except the two at-large seats. The two at-large. That's interesting. There's no runoff in those. I believe the two at-large seats, since there's two of them, whoever receives 50 percent would likely also goes into those positions. Okay, thanks. That was pretty basic, but I'm glad you had to explain. (laughs) No, we thought about it, too. (laughs) Okay. Uh, before we go, Denverite has a big event this week that will help voters decide, perhaps have a pick. As you say, they they don't have necessarily one yet. Des, what's going on? Yes. On Tuesday, Denverite is hosting its mayoral forum, the People's Forum. We'll be speaking with seven candidates on these same issues, but from the perspective of marginalized communities. We asked several nonprofits to submit questions that they want asked to the candidates, and we've done that. And we've made sure to be as pointed as possible and to give all of these nonprofits a voice. Um, The event is sold out, but you can see it at CPR's website. Now, tickets were free, but uh, it's full. Uh, So at CPR's website. uh, And when you you say marginalized communities, does you want to reflect a little bit more on who you hope to give voice to? Sure. So when I say marginalized communities, I mean those communities who have historically been unheard. Black and brown communities, the unhoused, uh, low-income communities. Throughout the city, we have, like I said, spoken to plenty of Denverites, and we focus specifically on these communities. We ask nonprofits that work in these communities that assist with housing, that assist with criminal justice, environmental justice, you know, what do they want to ask candidates? And like I said, historically, they haven't been able to ask candidates. Mm-hmm those questions face-to-face, and now we're giving them that opportunity. I feel like these are communities as well that were disproportionately hit in the pandemic. Exactly. Whose tail still looms large, I think, in this race, I have to imagine. And one other thing we have going on on Tuesday is that we're going to be dropping our extensive exciting voter guide. And this is a wonderful document that people can read as they're trying to figure out who to vote for, what to vote for. It's not biased. It's not going to tell people exactly how to vote or anything like that. It gives you a picture of those candidates. Yes. It's keeping them informed. And with that voter guide, we literally spoke to every mayoral candidate and every city council candidate. We have explainers on every single ballot measure that's going to be there. Only three this year. Typically, it's been a lot more than that. But three this year. And like I said, we've tried to be as extensive as possible, and we hope you enjoy reading it. All right. The debate, the forum, and the online voter guide. Thanks so much for being with us, you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Reporters Kyle Harris and Desiree Matherin follow coverage of the city's election at denverite.com and learn about other municipal elections across the state at CPR.org. We'll take a quick break and a little later this hour, an immigrant story told through rotisserie chicken. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. The sounds in nature are like the voices of friends. I know when I hear the first robin every spring what that means. The sound of wind in trees, the bugle of elk. Those are the memories that become the soundtrack to our lives. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. COVID arrived in this state three years ago. The virus has claimed nearly 15,000 lives here, yet there's no permanent site to honor them. CPR health reporter John Daly asks how history will remember this pandemic and the lives lost. At Jill and Greg Svensson's house in Castle Pines, the dogs rule Indy, Hugo, Mario, plus... Uh, Monty and Molly, the two white ones. That pair was an unexpected inheritance. It's been two years. December 2nd was two years. They joined the pack after Jill's mom, Trudy, died at 80. Jill says she had... At least 10 years left in her, if it weren't for COVID. In her kitchen, Svensson shows off mementos of Trudy Bershoff's life, a high school picture. Beautiful woman. Family photos, writings, and framed newspaper clippings. She says her mom was active and healthy, beloved by friends, kids, and grandkids. They absolutely just adored her. She was very spunky, I should say. (laughs) And she just had a great heart. In November 2020, Bershoff tested positive for COVID-19. She was in and out of the hospital where the ICU was packed and stress shown in the eyes of medical providers. They were so overworked and exhausted. A few weeks after she first got sick, Trudy's oxygen levels plunged. She was ventilated, and x-rays showed lungs like crepe paper. Jill was overcome with fear. I remember sitting in my car, and I was was hyperventilating. I just couldn't believe this was happening. I do not want to go back up there and say goodbye to her. Trudy Bershoff died just weeks before the vaccine became available. She was one of nearly 15,000 Colorado lives lost to COVID-19. I really think they have been forgotten. I feel like we've all moved on. And Svensson wishes there was some community memorial, someplace, something, to mark that gaping void the pandemic left for so many Coloradans. It's just become a controversy. I think it would honor so many people and their families. I would love something like that. Out in Arvada. And then this is just a bag full of numbers. Mary Eisenbeis explains how she did create something like that in the early months on a fence in her front yard. I thought it would be a way for people to to see. And so what I did was I posted the numbers every day. Eisenbeis strung up handmade figures updating the national death toll as it climbed into the hundreds of thousands. One neighbor stopped by to tell Mary how she'd first lost her father, then her husband. You know, her mother and she both were now widows and in this isolation of COVID. The neighbor was moved by words Eisenbeis also hung up. Their lives matter. And she said that was touching to her, that this mattered. It mattered to the bigger, in the bigger picture and and that other people cared. A few months later, though, the public debate was getting heated. Then the ferocious winds that fueled the Marshall Fire blew Mary's signs. Down the street and decided, at least for the time being, that we were going to stop. Not every historic event is memorialized, certainly, but some memorials in the state are fairly permanent 
like at the state capitol. So hi there. Hi, how are you? That's where I meet Nikki Gonzalez. She's a Regis University history professor. West of the building, an old statue is now gone. It used to be the pedestal that held the Civil War soldier. It's being replaced. Nearby, we find a plaque with the text to the Gettysburg Address. Down the hill, there's a replica of the Liberty Bell. Directly across from the Capitol, there's a prominent obelisk. So this one would be to veterans of multiple wars, I I think. absolutely. And And a stone and concrete monument to those who died in... World War I, II, the Korean War, Vietnam War, the Persian Gulf War, and the Afghanistan War. Around Colorado, you can also find memorials to prominent citizens and sports heroes, victims of 9-11, fires, floods, mine disasters, and mass shootings, but... Is there any memorial anywhere in Colorado to the pandemic? Gonzalez, a former state historian, shakes her head. Not that I know of. So I've asked my historian friends if they knew of any public memorial, and and we couldn't come up with anything. This despite the coronavirus pandemic claiming more Colorado lives than the flu pandemic a century ago more than any other historic event we know about. What do you make of that? Well, I think we're still in the pandemic. And so it's hard to memorialize something that you're still in the midst of. And also I think it's been such a politically divisive pandemic period. We haven't really grappled with it enough yet. Thousands turned out recently to honor a person who is memorialized in Denver, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. One was 69-year-old Berta Steen, She wears a mask, one with the stars of the Dallas Cowboys, a bold move in Bronco country. I ask her if she's lost someone to COVID. She says yes. Yeah, I had an auntie on my daddy's side in Victoria, Texas, passed away in a nursing home. She likes the idea of honoring them. Yeah, we all, every state needs to uh, remember the people that passed away with the COVID. You know, they, they didn't know. A lot of people didn't know they had it. Up the street, dozens march with a banner for Servicios de la Raza, a social services organization. One of them is Dr. Ricardo Gonzalez, no relation to the historian I talked to earlier. He says the pandemic has hit the Latino community hard. Death, illness, long COVID. You see a lot of people who are suffering the consequences of the virus that cannot work. He's a bit skeptical about a COVID-19 memorial. He doubts it will change anything, but says perhaps it could serve as a cautionary reminder. To try to prevent these things from happening again. On a cold, windy late afternoon, Jill Svensson and her husband Greg go to Denver's Fairmount Cemetery to visit the grave of Jill's mom. Trudy Bershoff, born March 28, 1940, and died December 2nd, 2020. On the headstone, there's a Star of David, a rose, and an inscription describing Trudy as an embodiment of light and love. It's really hard. This is where we had the, the funeral. Due to strict protocols at the time. It was sad. There's hardly anybody here to say goodbye to her. Jill Svensson thinks many Colorado families also long for a way to process their trauma. I think just having something to represent all of them would be amazing. Yeah. A place. A place. So somewhere people could go and say, that was my, my uncle, my mom, my dad. Yeah. She wonders if it's time Colorado not just count the lives lost, but fully remember them too. I'm John Daly, CPR News. And this is Colorado Matters. We'll be right back. 
Your old or unwanted car still has value. Donate it to Colorado Public Radio. We'll help free up some space in your garage or driveway, and you'll help CPR bring the programs you value to listeners across the state. Any make, any condition, we'll take it. Start the safe and easy car donation process and find answers to your donation questions at CPR.org support. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Chef Byron Gomez is as close to his Costa Rican roots as he's been since childhood. Roots he's replanted in Boulder. Gomez is a former Top Chef contestant, a disciple of famed French chef Daniel Boulud, and now he runs a chicken joint, his words, in a Boulder food hall. Pollo Tico serves the rotisserie chicken Gomez grew up with in Costa Rica, along with the sorts of sides his mother made. We met early in the day in front of his stall at Avanti Food and Beverage. We are standing in front of eight whole chickens. And chef, this is some of the most beautifully cooked chicken skin I have ever seen. Thank you. (laughs) We take pride in what we do. (laughs) Tell me about how you achieve this perfect brown. That is part of what we're trying to do here. It is something mind-blowing to this market, but for Costa Ricans, it's something so simple that we use with everything, and this is called Salsa Lisano. The Salsa Lisano is a Costa Rican brand that we literally eat it for everything. This is like what Heinz ketchup is to America, Salsa Lisano is to Costa Rica. And there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, probably 14 <laughs> bottles of Salsa Lisano above a food warmer. And there's like 20 more in the back just because we can't keep it in stock. (laughs) So salsa, of course, just means sauce. Although in the United States, we tend to think of salsa as being a tomato thing. Correct. This is like liquid. Yeah. Think about it like a cross between Worcestershire sauce, sweet and sour, and mustard. And this is available. You will find this in Costa Rican households across the whole country. And what about here in the United States? Uh, We have to get it imported from Costa Rica. Okay, so while it might not be a secret recipe, people have to come to you, essentially, to get it. I will say so, yeah. In the state of Colorado, (laughs) yes. And what does it do for the chicken, besides flavor? So it has this natural browning color to it. It's vegan, it's gluten-free, and it's extremely delicious. So what we've done, we brine the chickens for about 24 hours. We take them out of the brine, let an air dry for a little bit, and then right before they go into the rotisserie, we smother them with this salsa lisano. So as this rotating slowly, you, that Maillard reaction is acting up, and it's browning and caramelizing this beautiful skin that you get this amazing product at the end. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Maillard. Correct. Yes, that's where cooking gets almost like chemistry. Yes, it is, for sure. Could we try it? Yes, of course. I don't want to take food from the masses that will be joining you when you open. No, 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 not at all. I mean, that's what we're here for. And you guys came right before the masses come in, so. Do you have a favorite part of the chicken? Uh, The chicken oyster. Oh, tell me what that is. Yes, the chicken oyster. So the chicken oyster is found... Again, this is like a chef's secret. Okay. It's in the back. Oh, you've turned this chicken upside down. Correct. And the chicken oyster is these two little pieces of meat that are hidden behind this crevice. And to me, this is the most tender part of the chicken. So we're going to cut off this. Tell me something. Yes. You grew up, no doubt, with this chicken. Uh, Yes. Did you know about the oyster? No, not until I started working in fine dining restaurants. Uh That that was the secret that chefs would stash when they broke down the chicken. Pollo Tico (laughs) 
chicken, and then Tico, meaning someone from Costa Rica. Correct. It's like why we call Aussies or we call people here in the U.S. Yankees. Yeah. They call us Ticos. Ticos. Correct. What is the name of this chicken in Costa Rica? Uh, this is just a regular rotisserie style chicken. Almost okay. like street style, home style. Nothing fancy, but it definitely is close to the heart. So if you see, this is the chicken oyster. So we're going to go ahead with our fingers and then just take that out. And it looks incredibly moist. And it's nice and moist. And I'll give you a little piece of the skin. Oh, it's moist and it's got that rich, darker meat flavor. Correct. Yes. And this is the... I'm yep. so excited about the skin. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh, it has the perfect crunch. Right? The yes. perfect crunch. Yes, yes. And it's that salsa lisano that's doing a lot of the work there. That is what kind of takes this guy and hits the home run. So what this, else would you use salsa lisano for? Uh, in Costa Rica, we use it it's on, on the table. It's what like Tabasco is also oh. here. It's on the table. You add it to everything. And we add it to everything, to our eggs, to our arroz con pollo, to our chicken, to our steak, to our fish. It, it has a million uses. You also have lots of sides. Name one of your favorites. Uh, I mean, we've got to go with a classical gallo pinto, which is a Costa Rican staple. It's rice and beans mixed together, and we cook it in pork lard. It gives it that a little extra oomph, and then we finish it with peppers and onions as well. We are going to talk about your time coming up in Costa Rica, your food memories, yes, and then your arrival into haute cuisine and fine dining. I'm loath to leave these chickens behind, but shall we go find a seat <laughs> yeah, in yeah, this yeah. food hall? Sure thing, yes. So, Chef, you spent years working in some of New York City's finest restaurants, including Cafe Blue and 11 Madison Park. You were an executive chef in Aspen. But you say that you needed to find yourself in the foods of your native country. And so here you are on Pearl Street in Boulder, happily running what you call a chicken joint. Did you get this whole culinary world advancement thing backwards? I don't think backwards. I think a good chef needs to pivot. I think a good chef needs to um, really think how can they portray the message and who they are and tell their story. The message is who you are. Exactly. I mean, my message is, you know, I'm an immigrant, uh, a very humble upbringing. Although I have that soigné touch to my cooking, that doesn't mean that that was my roots. That being said, that also doesn't mean that my roots are in soigné. You use the term soigné, which is French for basically like fancy. You Correct. Know? And I guess what you're saying is we've lived in a world where French cuisine is fancy and maybe everything else is less fancy. And you're saying France, for instance or any other European nation, mm -hmm. doesn't have a corner on the soigné market. I mean, think about it. If you really go to the organic essence of why France is France or Spain is Spain, they took an interest in Latin America. They took their boats, the Niña, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, back in the day, and there's this famous captain called Columbus. <laughs> he took an interest in Latin America. And if we are honest with each other, they robbed us from our gold. 
they saw the value and the riches of what Latin America was, and they brought it back to Spain. It's culinary colonialism, I think. Yeah. You know the dish papillot? I do, like, yes. Okay. So when you take a fish, right. let's say, and the French have perfected it and documented it and, and exposed it to the world, you take a piece of paper, parchment paper typically, you have a fillet of fish in there that you put in raw, you season it, olive oil, salt, and a few little veggies, and you pop it in the oven, and next thing you know, you present the table side in this French fine dining Michelin Soignier star way. Exactly. <laughs> the server comes with white gloves and cuts it. And boom, there's a steam and aroma of this beautiful fish fillet that has been cooked. Costa Rica has been doing that way before the French. We just wrap it in banana leaves. We don't go out of the way and kill the tree and then process it to make it into a piece of paper. We actually just take what nature has given us. We wrap it, we either put it on, on embers or we bury it on the ground. When we take it out, we get a steamed, beautiful piece of protein and no one gives us credit for that. How did you feel as a kid when that steam would come out? I mean, it brings back memories. It brings back the essence of my culture and who I am. Your family emigrated to the United States and you ended up first in Long Island. Correct. I know that at 15, you went to work at a Long Island Burger King. Yes. What did that teach you? That was my, my eye-opening experience to what I would now consider my career. I was working front cashier, didn't really like it, although I'm on television and I have a restaurant that's like open to the public yeah. and I, I interact with public. I'm a very shy person and sometimes... Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes I don't want to stand people. So when I was working front cashier, people will come up to the Burger King register and have a hard time with the menu. And in my mind, I would be like, 50 years of the same menu. <laughs> what are you struggling <laughs> What with? are you struggling about? <laughs> so <laughs> things like that I couldn't really voice out. Um, the manager, who was a family friend at that time, brought me to drive through you know, he still wanted to give me a job and saw that I was struggling with certain things. Put me on drive through and at 15 years old, I couldn't really multitask. I couldn't talk over the mic, make change at the window, make the drinks, pressing the buttons to listen to the person making the order. So that was a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. One day, someone called out from the kitchen and they asked me if I wanted to help, at least to prep. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll give it a shot. You've certainly had done it in the past. With my parents. Yes. Nothing like industrial size uh-huh. or like professionally or chain restaurant type yeah. of thing. And I remember there was this one device that had four legs. It had a handle that you pulled towards you. And closer to you, there was this almost basket with blades. So you would put a tomato on that basket and then pull the lever and then slice the tomato will come out on the other side. Oh. And to me, it was one of the most fascinating things. At 15 years old, I was like, wow, this is really cool. This is some grown-up type of stuff. And I kept on doing that, and I prepped all the tomatoes. I washed all the lettuce. The cheese, we will take it out of the package and then crisscross them. So when you are assembling the sandwich, it's easy to pick out each slice. Ah, as opposed to having to peel apart each time. Exactly. Uh-huh. So all those little things, I started really taking attention and care for it. And that foundation was what built the rest of my career, I would say. Have you ever seen one of those slicers again? Only in fast food restaurants, uh-huh. honestly, yeah. <laughs> you don't have one. We do not have okay. one. <laughs> Gomez, as you'll hear a little later, is a DACA recipient, protection for people who came to the U.S. as kids. First, though, he told me about his leap into fine dining with French chef Daniel Bouloud. I never went to culinary school. 
I just worked at mom and pop shops. Yeah. And I told myself at that point, I was already cooking for about eight years professionally after Burger King. And I said, okay, this is the time where I'm going to get more serious and step it up a notch. But when I saw the application to apply for one of Daniel Bolu's restaurant, the first thought, again, like everybody shares, is I'm not good enough. This guy has stages, culinary kids that come and do a three-month stint, six-month, one-year stint at his restaurants that have come from the best culinary schools from around the world. Who am I? I'm mm-hmm. just a deadbeat kid that's living in the Bronx, grew up on Long Island, and is an immigrant. But I think... Um, what is it? Every shot that you don't take is an opportunity that you miss. Yeah. You miss 100% of the shots, shots you, you don't, don't make. take. Yeah, right. You don't yeah, take. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess I made it mine. You <laughs> I did. just kind of flipped I liked it. it. <laughs> yes, it's good. And, and you don't really know how good you are until you're put into these scenarios. So I said to myself, after like three weeks of debating whether I should apply or not, what do I have to lose? Mm-hmm. If, you, if you want something to happen new in your life, you have to take risks that you've never taken before. But it was three weeks of, of, of doubt of, and of wondering doubt. and churning. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And all it took was fill off something and click, and that was it. And I remember making that click, getting a deep breath inside of my lungs, and just wishing for the best. When I got cold to go for a stage... Yeah, stage, S-T-A-G-E, French for almost internship. Correct. It's a work interview, internship. It could be for three months. It could be for a week. It could be for a day, Mm -hmm. depending on the restaurant establishment. So I went in to Barbaloo. They were still building the both restaurants that I was part of the opening. I was going to be part of the opening. And he's got restaurants in New York and oh, Miami. Yeah, everywhere. Miami. Is there Aspen? He's got a, no, no. Not, not Aspen. Aspen no. Okay. It just seems At like At that would point, be. he had Beijing. He has Singapore. Uh, he's like all over the map. Uh-huh. Now he has Dubai. I mean, this guy is like the godfather. <laughs> of uh, French cooking, the Don Corleone of French <laughs> cooking here in the U.S. So uh, to have the opportunity to be working for such a esteemed chef, it makes you proud of the, all the efforts that you're making. How long did you get to be with him then? I was with him for five years. He was, I still to this day call him Papa. He is my, one of my biggest mentors. His restaurants, his establishment, his style was my culinary school. This is the one chef that I worked for the longest period of time. Uh-huh. And this was where I got my strongest foundation in classical French cuisine. You were clearly a success because he kept you on. Correct. And what did he tell you was the reason your application stood out? Well, he first told me, how old are you? And at uh, that time I was 22, I believe. And he's like, excuse my French, but he's like, uh, well, you still got 10 more years to eat. <laughs> and I was like, okay, great. <laughs> what did it, wait, make sure I understand what he meant. In other words... All the grunt work. Put your head down. And then he followed by saying, to be the best, you have to work for the best. Uh, he gave me, at the end of my second year with him, he gave me his memoir. Um, it's called Letters to a Young Chef. Letters so this, to a uh, Young Chef. This is advice for many young chefs at that time. And still, the book is still a really, really awesome book that I typically uh, recommend to my new cooks. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Give me an example of one thing that book taught you. There is no rush to get to the mountaintop. Once you get to the mountaintop, there's nowhere else to go but down. So what's the rush to get up there? A lot of young chefs nowadays want to be a sous chef at 23, want to get their Michelin star at 30. And those are great goals to accomplish. But once you accomplish that, 
there's an emptiness that just comes. You kind of almost accomplish perfection. And perfection, in my opinion, should never be accomplished because there's no such thing. I hear you embracing the journey. And I think there's so much focus on the destination. Mm -hmm. I hear you embracing the journey and saying, enjoy the journey. Correct. The journey is the thing. Correct. Your next gig was being a contestant on season 18 of Bravo's Top Chef. This is a, a cooking competition known for grinding down even the most <laughs> unflappable contestants. The secret of staying in a competition for so long for me was just be yourself. Every day you get a wrench thrown at you. And it's just having that confidence, which, which is hard. Did you go into that with doubt? Of or course. You, oh, of course? I mean... You hadn't mastered doubt at that point? I, I don't think people... I mean, if you say that you're not scared of going in front of national television and you've honed your skills for the past 18 years and you go in there and you see other people who are just from different cultures, different backgrounds, and we're all trying to compete into this one thing and every day you're getting questioned about your food, your technique, you know, 18 years later of doing the same thing, you think you mastered it, and then you go on a shopping block and they're like, well, it needed this, it needed that. And then you're, you, you're taking away your cell phone, your laptop, your books, you're disconnected from the outside world. Ugh. You don't know what day it is. You're told <laughs> what to do, where to be. The element of surprise is lurking at every corner. Of course it messes with you after a while. Uh -huh. <laughs> it almost, as you described it, it almost sounds like drills in a military academy. I mean, you're getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning. You have to be ready by 6. You're not done shooting by the time uh, 11 or 12 midnight. You're going for about 17, 18 hours, three months straight. And you're done at 11 or 12, but you go to your hotel room at that point because it was COVID. Typically, people live in a house, yeah. and it's like bunk beds, almost like dorm style. But you're marinating in your head about what's going to play out tomorrow, what happened today, how could I make my prep better. So you're not sleeping for two or three hours. So you go to bed around three or four to be back up again at six o'clock in the morning. Do that for a month. It will break it down. Uh -huh. <laughs> but it'll make everything else you do look easy. <laughs> I mean, you build a tough skin, that's for sure. Yeah. A tough skin. Now I'm thinking of the chicken skin again. <laughs> Damn you, Byron. You have mentioned on several occasions in our conversation, I'm an immigrant. Correct. Do you feel like you've internalized messages about what it is to be an immigrant? I mean, because it's a struggle that has been branded with who I am since the day that I stepped into this country. Uh-huh. Once I got old enough and I had recognition of certain things in life, I realized that I grew up in a neighborhood that wasn't equal as other neighborhoods. I realized that the supermarkets we were going to weren't the same as Whole Foods. I realized, if you want to even take it further, that the produce in those supermarkets were not as good because this is what my family could afford. Uh, the communities I grew up in, the school systems, everything was just like different than the typical America, let's say, of the Midwest mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, a richy part of town, the Hamptons, let's say, or Beverly Hills. And I started seeing that difference in society. You grew up knowing all of this. Once you go out into the real world, you try to fit in. It's like a teenager trying to find his way. They don't want to be judged. They jump from group to group to finally find out who they are or what group they click with. And that was my whole upbringing. One of the things that I yearn the most is 
travel the world. I can't do that currently because of my immigration status. Mm. But I strongly believe that I have provided this country lots of things that maybe the typical American hasn't done. I've reached pedestals that many people have dreamed of. I mean, I'm a business owner employing Americans and able to provide their paycheck every week. And although the system says no, I travel through food. You travel through food. Correct. That's how you get outside yourself, outside any sort of bubble. When you go to a country, I mean, if you go to France, what is one of the two or three things that you have to have in France? Yeah. A croissant. Uh-huh. Uh, Jean Bombert, a ham and cheese sandwich. Uh, when you go to Italy, you want to have an espresso with pasta. I could make that here. Uh-huh. These and are I'm adventures you go on. And that's what makes an essence of a culture. When I think of Costa Rica, I think of one dimension of the country being that many, many Americans are expats there. Correct. It's a real popular place for essentially white people to retire. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And yet in this country, uh, it strikes me as an ignorance of Costa Rican food. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's true? Do you do you do a lot of educating? Um, some of the most recent conversations before opening Pollo Tico that I was having with folks about what should be the message, what should be the food, I would say 85, 90% of the people that I spoke to, the first things that they mentioned were Costa Rica is a beautiful country. Uh -huh. I've been to the volcanoes. I've, I've ziplined. I ziplined in the jungle. Uh -huh. I've been to Tamarindo, to the beach. I've been surfing to Santa Teresa. And after six or seven things, the last thing that they mentioned is food. That's an issue. Me as a chef, I need to be an ambassador of that message. So now I'm trying to flip the script, just how I've been trying to flip the script throughout my whole life with many adversaries, whether it's immigration, whether it's fine dining, whether it is whatever. It's my responsibility to speak about what Costa Rican cuisine is like. They're talking about the aesthetics and they're talking about the materialistic stuff. I'm talking about the heart. Yeah. I'm talking about what has sustained the culture. And part of that here in America, here in Colorado, 90% of the people when they think about Latin American food is Mexico. There are 33 countries in Latin America <laughs> that nobody knows about. Well, who's stepping up to the plate to say that message? Batter up, here I am. Well, they've turned on the music in this food hall. <laughs> it's starting to get bumping. So before we go, my understanding is that you'd like to turn Pollo Tico into something like the next Shake Shack. You'd like there to be many Pollo Ticos. Correct. Uh, one is because I believe in the product. It is delicious. We're not reinventing the wheel. The Shake Shack reinvent the wheel? No, they just put a piece of ground meat with cheese between two buns. Very. <laughs> I think we could do that same with uh, a memory of what a Sunday night roast may be like. And uh, here in America, uh, in England, maybe a pot roast. Here in America, is rotisserie chicken or roasted chicken. So introducing something familiar but with different flavors, yeah. rice and beans and slaw, I think is something refreshing and something that you get out of the dogma of everyday repetitiveness because we are a country that everything is very repetitive. We go to our nine to fives, then we go to the gym, then we come home and repeat it the same thing. And sometimes we need those outlets on those weekends to go on a hike, to do something different from our norm. Why not eat something that's familiar but out of the norm? Well, I'm going to be thinking about that chicken skin for a long time, <laughs> Chef. Thank you so much for the time and the taste. This was awesome. Thank you. It was a great talking to you guys. 
Chef Byron Gomez of Pollo Tico on Pearl Street in Boulder. He was a Season 18 Top Chef finalist, and we'll post his rice and beans recipe, Gallo Pinto, at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. There are 178 school districts in Colorado, but at one point there were more than 2,000. And boy, do the remaining ones have some strange names. A question came into Colorado Wonders asking why districts are called what they're called. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine went on a search to find out. Adams 12, 5 star, Bayfield 10, JTR. Kim reorganized 88, and my all-time favorite, Miami Yoder, JT60. How did Colorado school districts get these freaky names? I had a real hard time finding someone who would actually talk to me about this until I found... Hi, Norma. Hi. I'm Jenny. Nice to meet you. Norma Anderson, the 90-year-old former lawmaker, is a legend. I pumped her for information. At its height in 1935, Colorado had 2,105 school districts. 2105. A school district had to have at least nine square miles. Ten students could petition the county superintendent to create a school district. So there were a ton of one-room, one-school districts because students... They either walked or rode a horse. For example, Weld County had 123 school districts. They were numbered, like Weld 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8... 223. The system was hopelessly inefficient, so the next 50 years was spent consolidating the 2,000 districts. Many took the county name, and some, like Jefferson County, consolidated into one district. Then some districts have letters like JT, J, R, and RE at the end of their names, like Rocky Ford, R2, or Vilas, RE5. What's up there? R and RE, our reorganization. Those districts were reorganized or consolidated. It was an R or RE, depending on the era in which they were reorganized. And the names Rocky Ford and Vilas, well, those are both names of towns. And now the J or JT. Take Edison School District 54 JT. JT means the district is... In two different counties, but it's joined. El Paso County, by the way, was a hotbed of consolidation resistance. Anybody that has tried down there has not succeeded. There are 15, or maybe 16, school districts still in El Paso County. Why? Individualism. My district's better than yours. Then there are some districts that just made up their own names. This call may be recorded for quality assurance. I had to call around now, starting with Prairie RE11. Why Prairie? Um, Like, we're right in the middle of Pawnee National Grasslands. Hang on just a second. Another of my favorite districts, Swink 33. Hello. Hello. Oh, hi. Is this the Swink School District? It is. Turns out Swink was a Colorado politician who also invented a crate for cantaloupes and started Watermelon Day. Miami Yoder JT60. So there's the town of Yoder, named after a postmaster, and the Miami? The first people who settled in this area came from Miami, Oklahoma. And Norma Anderson says sometimes a name might just be... Something they pulled out of the sky. I got many of the names down, but Agate 300. Why the 300? Those darn numbers at the end of the school district name. Everyone had a different theory. 
Durango 9 told me nine districts had consolidated. The superintendent of Byers 32J says the old-timers told him the 32 is that original school district number. It didn't get eaten up by other districts. I got real excited when Pueblo 70 passed on the name of Bill Brager, a retired teacher principal school board member. Bill, I've been basically looking for you for about a month. Bill gave me a lot of good information, like Pueblo 70 consolidated from 34 smaller school districts. But when it came to why Pueblo 60, in the city at 60, while Pueblo 70, outside the city, got the names they did, Bill let out a sound that I've been making for the past month. And then he said, 60 and 70, I don't know who picked those numbers. District 60 picked 60 for some reason, and the folks in District 70 said, hey, we're going to one-up you. We're going to go 10 more than you. Finally, last week, I got one of the most solid clues yet from Mesa Valley 51. The number was the order in which the school districts petitioned for recognition from their county. DeBeck 49 was the 49th little district to form in Mesa County, and Mesa was number 51. That's the best I can do for now. I ran out of time to call Kim Reorganized 88 and Lone Star 101. I'm Jenny Brundine, Colorado Public Radio News. Oh, it's fun to hear about Swink, home to the state's tallest flagpole at 166 feet. Okay, send us your questions about this state at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. Elementary, my dear, two times two is four. Elementary, my dear, two times three is six. Elementary, my dear, two times four is eight. Elementary, my dear, two times five is ten. Two times one is two, of course, and it must occur to you. You get an even number every time you multiply by two. Elementary, my dear, two times six is twelve. Elementary, my dear, two times seven is fourteen. Elementary, And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our own team of wonderers. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Twenty twice is forty and it must occur to you You can double any number, all you do is multiply by two Elementary, my dear, two times two is four Elementary, my dear, two times three is six Yeah. Elementary, my dear, two times four is eight